Okay, welcome to Blind Skeleton Online Radio. You are listening to Blind Skeleton's 2023 Holiday Music Edition. I am your host, Bonaparte. I am sitting here with my co-host, Yulia, and we have a grand number of wonderful old pieces of music to share with you today. Some are old, some are older, some are newer, all of which are really wonderful pieces of music to listen to. We will have stories to tell, we will have some information to share about the music, about the records, but most of all we are here to enjoy some music. We are going to kick off our show today with an old song from 1911. This is O Come All Ye Faithful by the Trinity Choir. Once again, recorded in 1911 on the Victor label. was a properly sung hymn uh, complete with your amen at the end um, and beautifully sung actually I, I'm I, I, I love hymns I love church hymns I have a, I, you all don't know too much about me but I have a musical background um, I went to Westchester University for music go Rams and I 
have an appreciation, especially for vocal music, because that is my training. Um, but that, uh, yeah, that was brilliantly done. And I, I like it um, as a musician and as a singer, because I could understand every single word they were saying. And I imagine that they were probably really overdoing their diction um, so that they could be understood because the, now you'll have to educate me here because I don't know how, what was the mechanism for recording this please? Uh, back in the 1910s, they would have recorded all of this music, vocals and instruments into essentially the large end of a funnel or they would have been singing into the large end and it would have been vibrating a stylus that would have etched the sounds onto the medium on the far end. I see, yeah. Okay, well that makes perfect sense then, that why everything was so overdone. Like, their, their diction was on point, and I really appreciate that, because one of the things that I cannot stand about modern recordings, even with all of the technology that we have today, you listen to somebody singing, and you can't understand what they're saying, and it's really frustrating. So um, I really appreciated that about that recording. Um, you said it was from 1910? 1911. I beg your pardon. 1911, I was not paying attention. So, uh, yeah. Um, brilliant. Loved it. I think that I heard a pipe organ in there, and I definitely heard bells. So that must have been... Would they have had more than one... You said the the large end of a horn, right? So, would they have had more than one, or was did everybody have to like crowd around the same thing? They would thing? have had only one, and they would have had to definite, definitely crowd around it. No kidding. Yeah, it, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm getting a mental image. <laughs> it, it's a great image. Uh, in fact, when they had orchestras playing, small orchestras with five or six instruments. Yeah. But when it came time for one of the instruments to have their solo, they would rush up to the horn ah. so they could be that. Much much closer to it and then back off and let the others play afterwards i love it that's i'm getting a visual because that was i mean there were so that what we just heard there were at least four singers i think it was probably one person on each part soprano tenor alto bass um but if there were more than <laughs> so we're, we're talking there's at least six people there four singers one organist who obviously cannot rush to the horn to, to so they must have had they must have had it pointed I mean it sounded like a reed organ to me maybe so um, yeah that would have that would have been a uh, a sight to behold it, <laughs> definitely they had they did very well with the technology that they had at the time yeah you know, for what they were able to do cool now the the song itself was originally written in Latin. Yes. And it was named... Adeste Fidelis. Yes, and it mm -hmm. was written by John Francis Wade in the 18th century. Mm -hmm. um, it obviously predates anything recorded, but they did have sheet music at the time, which is how music would have been shared and how famous songs would have been shared. It would have been sold via sheet music. Of course. Yes. Oh, me? Yes. Okay, what is this? Let me see. Oh, it's in German. It's Auf Deutsch, which means I have to say it. <laughs> that is absolutely correct. Um, oh, du Fröhliche. Um, so the English translation is wrong because they say um, here, it says in, in parentheses underneath here. So it's the, uh, looks like the label is Radio Disc. Phonograph records. Um, I presume this is this is recorded in Europe, so that could be anywhere. But um, yeah, Odu Fröhlich, Fröhliche, beg your pardon, is O U Merry Ones. Um, but the English translation underneath it says Joyous Night, which is wrong and BS. So yeah, that's what that is. Um, never heard of this. Tell me about it. Uh, this was written by Johannes Falk. Um, this song, it was initially entitled A Song for Three Holidays. It was dedicated to the major Christian festivals you know, in the 
late 17, early 1800s, you know, of Christmas, Easter, and Pentecost. Mm-hmm. And it was ultimately published in 1816 and set to the hymn of O Most Holy, which was based on an old Sicilian fisherman song. Oh. It went, underwent a transformation after Falk's death um, from his former assistant, um, with, whose name I'm not going to try and pronounce very well, uh, Heinrich Holschner. Uh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> who added a couple of more verses and adapted it to the Christmas carol that we know today. That was lovely. I really liked that. Um, uh, when we were talking um, that people didn't hear, uh, you had mentioned that this was recorded electronically. And yes, good thing, because obviously there was an orchestra um, and there was a lovely pipe organ um, that I could hear a whole lot of. Sometimes the the lower range of instruments is difficult to pick up, even with the the recording tech, even with electronic recording technology. Electric. Uh, I beg your pardon. Electric. Uh, it's electric. It is electric. Boogie woogie woogie. Yes, indeed. Uh, so, uh, 
Yeah, no, that was lovely. I really loved that. And I, I feel like I've heard that tune before. I know I, I said I didn't recognize it, but um, I feel like there's a hymn that's set to that particular tune, but it's not coming to me. And it probably will at a random time. And I will then promptly forget it again. So. And, and then blurt it out in the middle of another song. Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> or I'll be singing it and I'll be like, oh, I know what that is. <laughs> But yeah, yeah, no, that was great. I loved that. That was beautiful. Really beautiful. Yeah, so the electric recording that Yumi was referring to began to happen around the year 1926. Um, prior to 1926, music was recorded more, mostly acoustically when they had, you know, after, you know, the phonograph was first introduced. You know, and that was literally the the recording of the sound vibrations you know, etched onto a medium, whether it was a cylinder disc at the time or later a shellac. And the there were a lot of of holdouts and issues to that, some things that they just could not reproduce sound-wise, which was primarily the lower-end bass that had a very hard time being vibrated literally onto the, onto the disc or the record. Mm. Now, around 1926... The, the ability to use electric amplification via a microphone began to become in use. Uh, it was Victor at the Victor Talking Machine Company in Columbia kind of founded how to do that at the same time. Yeah. And they were now able to put a microphone in front of each individual instrument. So instead of having a musician rush up to the funnel, to be to play, they could have an orchestra sit there and play, and they could really hear the the low end of all the music as well. Yes, yes. Now you're speaking my language, um, and you and I have talked about this before. And I feel like I need to mention this uh, also to people who don't know me. Um, I, I am a tuba player, and the um, tuba was used prior to these more modern conventions for recording tubas were often used in place of string basses just for that reason because tubas were much easier because of the nature of the way wind instruments move sound literally vibrating the the air particles to create sound much easier to record than string basses um so it does not surprise me that on this more modern recording that we heard that lovely orchestra, and we also heard all of that lovely orchestra, including the bass. Um, I mean, it, it's not as as rich as we would expect from today, but but you could definitely hear it. It was there, and it was definitely not a tuba. That was a string bass, for Absolutely. sure. Yeah. Absolutely. So for our next song, we're going to reach farther back again, back into 1912. I did not introduce the choir that sang the first song. That was the Trinity Choir. They were a choir that sang with the Victor Talking Machine Company primarily. Oh, so it was a literal choir. It wasn't it was just a, like chamber it, singers. Like it, it was, was an a, actual choir, yes. Holy smokes. Yes. Okay. Yeah, um, back, back in the day, uh, Victor really tried to do music correctly, and they would hire proper orchestras, bands, and such. Sure. A lot of them were their house band. You know, you'll see on the records the Victor Concert Orchestra. You know, oh. But they actually did hire high-end musicians to record their songs for them. Oh, for sure. I just, I, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking of sheer numbers. So what I'm talking about, like a, because there's like, there's choirs, there's like concert choirs, which is like cast of thousands, um, not thousands, literally, but more than one person on a part. Um, but that sounded to me like a chamber group, like it was only four people. Like a chamber choir. When I talk, you know, there's there's different si there's different types of choirs, right? Um, so, I wonder if they had like a full choir, but then they had like soprano, alto, tenor, bass, like the ringers getting yeah. up close. Yeah, mo most likely that's a, most likely that's exactly what would have happened. Okay, when okay. Even um, you know the the large orchestras at the time would have had a full orchestra but when they recorded they would have brought only a subset of them sure yeah, yeah. and yeah. that's likely what what they 
did with the Trinity Choir as well. So they just had a like a couple of ringers come in yeah, and absolutely. do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And sense. I bring that up because our next song is also sung by the Trinity Choir, and this was recorded in 1912. All right. Hey, this is my favorite Christmas song of all time. Huh. This is Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Uh, I go back to, to grade four with this when I didn't recognize the fact that Hark had an exclamation point after it. I had no idea what the song meant when I first sung it. And how uh, old were you? I'm sorry. I would have, grade four, I would have been eight like or nine. ten, yeah. Yeah. Bless your heart. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, this was the, the first and I think probably only song I ever sang in a Christmas concert. Uh, I was part of uh, a choir of us youngsters. Oh, they make you do that in school. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah and, and I, I loved it. Um, I always thought it was just one huge sentence, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, and I didn't realize why they were doing what they were doing i thought it was harold there yeah like like when I mean, you talk Har- about not harold hearing angel. the yeah yeah like who's harold yeah yeah exactly <laughs> i never didn't come across him in the in the bible yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know there's gabriel there's michael and then there's, <laughs> and then there's harold, harold. <laughs> <laughs> yes and then of course after the fact after i sang this i began to become even further infatuated with it as this is the outro to the charlie brown christmas special oh yeah and who doesn't love that exactly everyone loves charlie brown sure yeah so the song um goes back in time you know hundreds of years like a lot of these do the original hymn was titled hark how all the welkin rings and this was written by Charles Wesley in 1739. Oh, okay. Um, it be it went through some rewrites until ultimately someone by the name of Felix Mendelssohn got oh, to it in that, 1840. He was a pretty cool cat. Yeah, he he did a couple of things here and there. Yeah, you know. Yeah, and he he ended up making the version that we know and love today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. was Hark the Herald Angels Sing, one of my favorite songs of all times, regardless of, you know, who or when recorded it. Yeah. 
Um, so that was that was really cool because, like I said before, uh, you can really hear the tuba uh, in that um, playing that bass. Um, very evident to me, anyway. Um, so I've been tasked with choosing the next one, and I honestly I have no idea what this is. I have no idea what to expect. I grabbed it because it's in German, and I love German. Uh, it is. Ein Wiedersehen am Weihnachtsabend, which, uh, with my terrible German, uh, means a Christmas Eve farewell, or a Christmas farewell. Christmas is Weihnachtsabend is Christmas evening, or I, I'm I'm gonna say Christmas Eve, um, and Wiedersehen is until I see you again. It is. That one I actually knew. Yeah. Yeah. So this particular song was originally recorded in Berlin sometime between 1905 and 1909. Old. It is old. Uh, this particular version on the Victor label was recorded in 1911. Mm. Wir wollen 
So I'm sure you got more of that than I did. Well, uh, ach du lieber, so viel Sturm und Drang. <laughs> that was that was a lot. I don't know what was going on. I I I wish um, that the diction had been better because that sounded very dramatic. <laughs> it sounded uh, uh, they were they they were going through it. Um, Sounds like they had a lot going on. So, uh, yeah, I wish I could. I wish I could have understood that a little bit better. But unfortunately, um, due to the low volume as well as the quality of the recording, it was a little bit difficult for me to understand. Unfortunately, even with my my, I mean, like my German is limited. But when I hear it, I can I can understand most of it. Um, much of my family is is from Germany and uh, grew up in a household where some of us, our second language was English. So, um, yeah, there's that. So that was fun. That was weird. Huh? Well, the, <laughs> the amazing thing to me about that record and the others that we're listening to is that these really are like a Christmas carol and the ghost of Christmas past come back to talk to us. Yeah. You know, they're like ghosts and whispers from these people you know, over a hundred years ago now yeah. that we're still listening to. Yeah. And yeah. It's really yeah, yeah. amazing. Yeah. I mean, I didn't, I, I, I can, the only thing I can really speak to with that particular recording is that baritone was boss. He was great. He did a great job. So I don't know who it was, but go you dude. <laughs> so speaking of boss, <laughs> uh, we're going to move on to another boss. Okay. Okay. Uh, up Bruce next. Springsteen. Not, no, oh. a little before birth. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, up next, we have Serenade of the Bells um, by, I'm not going to call him a boss, by Guy Lombardo and, of course, his <laughs> Royal Canadians. Um, this is a song, it's a foxtrot we've got coming up, recorded Ooh. in 1949. Uh, 1947, I'm sorry. Uh, and this is a, a song that tells a story... Um, that's set in the sleepy little town of San Juanita. The song revolves around a young couple seeking permission to marry in the spring under the condition from their families that the mission bells, which have been silent for a very long time, must ring. Time. 
Still the bells are broken, does the story. But if in your heart a true love dwells, they will ring for you in all their glory. That's the serenade of the Okay, perhaps not a Christmas song per se, but it's got bells in it, and that counts. That was not a foxtrot. It was not a foxtrot. I'm sorry. That's if I that would put me to sleep. Well, thankfully, it did not. <laughs> uh, and what it, you called him the <laughs> uh, well, you called him the Lawrence Welk. <laughs> yeah, what, what, when we were off air, um, I was explaining that I believe Guy Lombardo as the. Lawrence Welk of the North. Listen, that's a compliment. I, Lawrence Welk gets gets a lot of people. People have opinions about Lawrence Welk, and say what you will about him. And you know the show is dated, and you know, but that dude knew how to, he had some great musicians. And I suspect was Guy Lombardo. He was a band leader. He was okay. Yes. I suspect the same. I suspect he he sought out and got good um good help good enter- oh, sure, good entertainers yeah. you know um so mr lombardo wherever you are i'm sure you're on the other plane of existence we respect you <laughs> you have the next is it my song. turn it is okay. your turn what's up next all right let's i think we gotta i think it's time to pick things up a little because <laughs> after that i'm about ready to go into a coma um wow yeah yeah so <laughs> Uh, I have in my hot little hand um, the Jingle Bells Fantasy, which is um, looks like it was recorded by the Victor Salon Orchestra, which we talked about. Um, I don't know anything else about it. Do you have? I'm sure you're. He's looking. I, I am He's looking searching. it up right now, and I don't really have. Um... A whole lot to say about that, uh, other than it's a whimsical arrangement of the classic song Jingle Bells. Whimsical. Whenever Whim- I hear the word whimsical, I twitch. <laughs> <laughs> but she twitches whimsically. <laughs> um, I'm trying to read what's on here. It's um, traditional arrangement by Rosario Bourdon. And it's under the direction of Rosario Bourdon with male quartet. So that could go either way. Yeah. Male what? We don't know. We hope they're male humans. Thank you. 
something that we might hear from Looney Tunes, in fact, with the upbeat, bouncy melody. For sure, for sure. Um, we were discussing off-air that, you know, this is, you know, it was probably definitely written in the in the early to mid-40s. Um, but yeah, I liked that. That was, that was terrific. Um, really incredible arrangement. Um, they really lit a firecrack under that horse's backside. It uh, really did, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and some interesting choices. Um, for one, uh, whistling. <laughs> whistling is a choice uh, in music that baffles me. Because <laughs> uh, not many people do it well. Um, but yeah, no, I, I liked that. That was a really, that was a, a very nice arrangement of Jingle Bells. And I, it, Jingle Bells is not one of my favorite holiday tunes, but I liked that. I liked the musicianship. I liked the choices. I, I even liked the four males. They they did that well. It was not for barking dogs. <laughs> Thank God. Yes, they, they did that well. That was fun. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Yeah, well, speaking of Looney Tunes, mm. and how that reminded me of it, um, it kind of segues into our next song in a way. Coming up next, we've got a couple of selections from the Nutcracker Suite. Uh, and these were recorded by the Philadelphia Orchestra under the direction of Leopold Stokowski. Ah, oh, legend. Now, the reason that I bring up the Looney Tunes reference is the Philadelphia Orchestra under Stokowski were responsible for a lot of the songs that were played in Looney Tunes and Merry Melodies. And chances are a lot of you, if you're listening out there, are Gen Xers like I am. That was your first introduction to classical music. Oh, for sure. Was... I would not have been a musician if not for Looney Tunes. Uh, yeah. Honest to God. Between Looney Tunes and Tom and Jerry. Sure. Absolutely. Oh. Just brilliant musicians, really incredible yeah. scores. Yeah, and Stokowski was the the leader, the conductor of the Philadelphia Orchestra from 1912 to 1941. It was an incredibly long time. And they recorded, in fact, on the Victor label starting in 1912. And some of those old recordings just still sound absolutely fantastic. Mm-hmm. You know, for the technology they had at the time, Stokowski was able to get just the the most and more from his orchestra than you know most other people were able to do at the time no question so the two that we have coming up next were recorded in 1935 so this was you know getting close to the end of his his time with the orchestra oh this looks bigger this is a 12 inch (laughs) record okay Uh, you know Yulia brings up a good point that is you know fun to talk about at this point 78 rpm records 
uh, spun really fast, 78 rounds per minute, you know, as opposed to the 33 that you know, most people are familiar with today on vinyl records. And because of the technology, the groove on the record is also much wider than a 33 RPM record is. It's not a micro groove. It's, they never didn't use the term macro groove, but it's really what it is. It's a much wider groove. And as a result of the combination of the wider groove and the faster spinning record, uh, only one song is really able to be put onto one side of a record. Now, a 10-inch record, which was standard at the time, could hold at most four minutes, typically three and a half minutes of music or sound. Mm -hmm. uh, so one way to help um, be able to record more sound onto a record was to increase the size of it to 12 inches, mm. which is what this particular record is. And they could get up to about five and a half minutes of music and sound per side of record. Cool. And that was enough for them to get the two songs that we're about to listen to. Nice. And when was this recorded, please? 1935. Okay. Yeah, so it, it was recorded electrically with each musician having his or her own microphone. Mm. Yes, there's a really rich sound to it, and I know that Stokowski would not have allowed anything to be recorded and distributed that did not have that sound. Um, it, w it will be top-notch coming from him. So the songs that we have are The Dance of the Sugar Plum Fairy, followed by The Russian Dance, which are probably two of the most well-known out of the Nutcracker. For sure, for sure. And as in the ballet... Um... Apart from the uh, Arabian dance, these are uh, these are two of my favorite pieces of choreography. Um, but the Russian the, the Russian is very exciting uh, to watch and to listen to.
So interestingly enough, that song, the in particular the dance of the Sugar Plum Fairy, uh, introduced the Celeste, and that was introduced to the Russian audience by Tchaikovsky in this particular ballet. And the Celeste, for those who don't know what that is, is that a bell kind of chimey, it almost sounds like a glockenspiel, but it's actually a keyboarded instrument. Um, so that's what a Celeste is. And that Russian dance is a banger. I love it. It, it does not get old. It does not get old for it, me. It does not. And yeah. it is fantastic to watch in person. Mm, mm. Yes. Yes, it is. Unfortunately, you have to sit through a whole ballet <laughs> <laughs> to get to that one. <laughs> but it really is gorgeous. And and I'm not, listen, I'm not ragging on ballet, but because it is really fantastic. And if you see, if you get the chance, everybody at least, you know, at least once in your life, you should go find a production of The Nutcracker to support um, because it really is, it, it's, you know, kind of a holiday tradition, but also you're supporting your local arts too. It, it is. Supporting Ab dancers. And absolutely. So. Ab and supporting local arts are, is always an important and good thing to do. Yes. So, you know, and any ballet troupe that is worth their salt will have their Russian dancers come out and do that a second time because it's always such a, um, an amazing thing to watch. I have never seen it performed a second time because that's like exhausting. <laughs> it, it is. It is. And every, um, every time I've seen it, which happens to be twice, um, it counts as every time, um, I have seen the crowd be so impressed by it that the dancers came out to do it again. Oh, that's wonderful. That's really great. Yeah, it Who is. did it? Do you, do you remember? I do not remember. It was probably 70 or 80 years ago. 70 or 80? Maybe. Okay. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, well, that, that's terrific. I, that's, I'm, yeah, very impressed that anybody can do it. I'm impressed when people do it once, <laughs> but twice in a row, that's like my heart would explode. <laughs> um, so I have, uh, I've been tasked with picking the next one. Um, and I have with me, um, we're slowing it down because <laughs> I think we need to. Um, I've got Stille Nacht, Heilige Nacht. Um, by Emil Munch um, with his orchestra. Um, it is a Victor record. Well, I, I chose this, um, well, again, because German, but also um, it's, it, you know, it's a, it's a holiday favorite and it's, it sort of epitomizes, um, it sort of epitomizes Christmas Eve, I think. Um, it's beautiful, it's peaceful, it's reverent. Yeah, and this one was recorded uh, a good long time ago, back in 1909. Whoa, okay. So, uh, interesting. All right.
Now, for those of you who don't speak German, I'm sure you still understood that song. Mm. It's more than a little bit popular these days. Yeah. Um, I'm sure you heard the tuba. I did. I always listen for it. <laughs> <laughs> but that was lovely. That was uh, obviously sung by a tenor. Um, and that dude's name, again, was Munch, right? Emil Munch. M-U-E-N. Emil. Emil. E-M-I-L. Mitch. M-U-E-N-C-H, which I'm thinking is misspelled. I'm sure there was an S in there. But, um, yeah, that was lovely. And um, the I think the organ was a reed organ um, that we heard in there. But, yeah, really beautiful. And I, for me, no Christmas is complete without seeing that. I, I, I feel... Um, I don't know. It's, it's, you know, returning to it is like, it's like an old friend. It's like an old, it's like, uh, like your most comfortable, uh, now I was going to say it's like your most comfortable pair of socks, but it's not, it's, it's a, it's, it's just, I feel peaceful when I hear it. It, It's a very nice song. Mm. Um, It is very peaceful. I still get, um, images of you know a, a snow-covered valley, mm-hmm. you know, with a, a couple uh, with the big steeple in the church in the middle, yeah. you know, and the church that's lit. And I just, I get that that peaceful wintry feeling from it, and the light from within. Yes, exactly. Yeah. The warmth of the light. Yeah. 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 Okay, so we're going to finish up our show tonight with one more, um, perhaps not so warm and fuzzy <laughs> song. But one that's fun nonetheless. We've got coming up for you now, Parade of the Wooden Soldiers. It's a great song. It is. Um, (laughs) Some of you might know it as Parade of the Tin Soldiers. It's really all one and the same. Uh, This was, in fact, a march um, composed by Leon Jessel in 1897. It's an old song. It's fun. Uh, I think everyone has covered the song at least once. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. I've played it. I've played it a number of times. On the tuba? Absolutely. That is awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That it's it's awesome. a lot of fun. And this version was recorded in 1922 um, by a band called the International Novelty Orchestra. Ooh. Yes. Their, their purpose was to record, um, I want to use the term whimsical, but perhaps that's not quite the right term. Um, light classical and popular music was the repertoire. Okay. And this happened to be one of the ones that um, they recorded for the Victor Talking Machine Company. Super cool. Thank you. 
Super cool. So, a uh, couple things. Uh, so, did you hear? Did you hear at the end um, how the wooden soldiers? You know how you wind them up. Did you hear them slow down at the end? The woodwinds. Oh yeah. Slowed down. Yeah. yeah yeah yeah. That that was that's a that's a really cool choice. Um, but yeah that so. I was mistaken. I thought I was going to hear something else. I have played this piece too, but um, yeah, I thought this was going to be a different piece, but important to note, you know, people take marches for granted because they're ubiquitous. They're yes. everywhere. And, you know, Sousa wrote so many of them and there, there've been a number of other people who wrote marches, but the musicianship in this is outstanding because this is a very that's actually a very technically difficult piece to play it doesn't sound like it but it is because you've got all of your brass players going and that's when you're <clears throat> excuse me if you are playing a brass instrument your lips are vibrating at the same time while you're while you're trying to articulate that and it's it's really hard to keep clean and that was clean so i'm super impressed with that and also and you you mentioned that this was called also called march of the tin soldiers yes did parade you, of the tin soldiers i beg your pardon parade of the tin soldiers did you notice the use of the mutes in the trumpets i did not so they had um they were using at one point um mutes aluminum mutes to make it sound tinny Oh, neat. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it, I, I really appreciated the choices that they made for this. Um, so kudos to them. I was, it's, it's, it's so great to me. And when was this recorded? 1922. That's great. I, it stands the test of time. Good musicianship and good music stands the test of time. I love it. Yeah, it, ab absolutely. You know, even back with uh, the technology or the lack of technology that they had yeah. uh, in the 1920s, um, good music still sounds good today. Oh, yeah, yeah. It, yeah. it totally, it stands the test of time. Love it. That was awesome. Cool. Okay, so that is our show for today. Thank you all for listening in. I hope wherever you are, you have a happy Christmas, a merry Yule, happy Hanukkah, or whatever it is you may celebrate, if nothing at all. I just hope you happen to have a fantastic day. Everyone deserves it, and it is the middle of winter, and everyone... It really deserves a little piece of brightness in the middle of these long, dark days. No kidding. Thank you all once again. You are listening to Blind Skeleton Radio. I am Bonaparte with my co-host, Yulia. Have so a, nice to meet you. Have a fantastic <laughs> day and night. Bye.